Welcome to Paradigms at Paradigms.life, the radio show and podcast that brings you inspired, inspiring people with visions of a viable future for life on Earth that includes humans. Hi, I'm Baruch, host of Paradigms. Thanks for tuning in. I think you're going to find this episode very interesting. I had a conversation with a man who's just written a new book about American metaphysical religion. This is a very well-researched effort that he's spent decades working on. This book explores the history of especially metaphysical religion and Christianity in this place that became the United States. He goes all the way back to before the Europeans came and brings us up to the present. It's very interesting and very relevant to what we see happening in the United States these days regarding religious extremism. And of course, we'll be listening to some great music too. So let's get right to it and meet my guests on this episode of Paradigms. Ronnie Pontiac, welcome to Paradigms. Thank you for having me here. I'm pleased to talk with you. Uh, you have this new book out, American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World, and I've been reading it, and it's an amazing compendium of historical fact. I mean, it's just full of interesting history that you don't get anywhere else. Yes. The point of the book was to take a lot of academic research that has revolutionized our view of the history of metaphysics, not only in America, but all over the world, but in America particularly. And I was stunned by all the new information. And so I wanted to share it with people who would find it as interesting as I did. Well, a few little questions. Firstly, how long have you been working on this book? You know, the book really started in the 1980s when I worked for Manley Hall. It started when I found in his vault of rare books and manuscripts a tome that had bound in it copies of a newspaper called The Platonist, which was published in St. Louis, Missouri at a time when the gunfight at the OK Corral had just occurred. And it was still a cow town, although it was becoming industrialized. And this newspaper had translations of Plato and the Neoplatonists. And not only that, but for example, it had a translation of the French magus, Eliphas Levi's Transcendental Magic by Abner Doubleday, who was a Civil War general on the Union side and who was falsely credited for inventing baseball. I was amazed by this thing. I mean, how did it happen? Who Cowboys making a platonic news and a newspaper? It was very strange. And when I talked to Manley Hall about it, he didn't know much about it either. There were some people that we knew a little about, like Alexander Wilder, who was a big contributor, but not a lot of information was available. So it started me on this trek to find out more. And, and the more I searched, the more I found out. So every question I got answered, there were more questions that were born from those answers. And every time I toured, I went to libraries and bookstores and anywhere I could to find more information. But the real revolution happened with the internet. And there was a time back in the day when Amazon and Google Books allowed you to search through the books that they offered. And that made the book possible, really, because the academic books are so expensive and so obscure even though I had help from academics, and they were very generous sharing information with me. I really <laughs> I depended on being able to search those books. You can't do that anymore, unfortunately. Your bibliography, I mean, there are 
hundreds of references, it's clear that this is a, a very well researched book. This is not fly by night. Someone, you know, had a thought. This is you really looking into a whole lot of areas of, of data. I was especially fascinated by your accounts of indigenous life in what we now call New England in the 17th and 18th centuries. And I'm from New England and uh, I'm from Vermont where your book was published. Yes. Very cool. Inner Traditions is an awesome publishing house. They are. And reading that stuff just was fascinating, affirming, touching, clarifying. But then you go all the way through all of that, through, you know, the theosophists and the anthroposophists and I mean, all this stuff until we end up in the present moment dealing with uh, evangelical fanaticism, I'm going to call it, and and some really dangerous ideologies that are pulling from the past, but adding sort of the vehemence of contemporary politics. Yes. So I just find that to be important for people to understand how did we get here? Mm hmm. And to see that it's been with us all along throughout the history from the earliest colonization. It's it's such a, a changed viewpoint on America when you realize that even the pilgrims, for example, had occult interests and that that John Winthrop, who was the governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, the first governor, that his son, John Winthrop, the younger, who was the first governor of the Connecticut Colony territory, that he was a devout alchemist, deeply influenced by the Rosicrucians, had actually gone to Europe searching for Rosicrucians. And when he couldn't find them, he dedicated his life to living up to Rosicrucian ideals. And when he brought his crates of laboratory equipment and books, many of which had belonged to John Dee, he placed on these crates John Dee's famous Monus Hieroglyphica symbol, which there could not be a more occult symbol. And another example I give is the way Cotton Mather referred to, to John Winthrop the Younger in his eulogy as Hermes Christianus, which is a pretty stunning statement, the Christian Hermes. This is Cotton Mather. Yeah, yeah, so, the witch hunter. Yeah, so it changes the view of, of, of what Christianity meant, even to the pilgrims. And then, of course, you had people who came to the United States, or at that time, it wasn't anything really, it was just a continent, to get away from religious conformity and pressure and to practice their religion. So you have something like Ephrata and these colonies that went out into the wilderness and, and created communities experimenting with these ideas and creating amazing arts and crafts and music. So America from the beginning was saturated with metaphysical ideas. You're listening to my conversation with Ronnie Pontiac, author of the new book, American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World. It's a really interesting book. I hope you'll check it out. We'll be back with more of this conversation. And just so you know, we're listening to excerpts from the conversation in this episode because Ronnie and I talked for quite a while. You can hear the interview in its entirety at the Paradigms website, paradigms.life. We'll be back with more of this conversation after we hear some music, starting out with something from Medicine Dream, People of the Dawn. This is Paradigms at Paradigms.life. When the summertime has come To the people of the dawn 
We'll be fishing on the coasts Oh, like our ancestors have done When we crawled out of the earth Our spirit was born We were purified and ready We were thankful evermore
That was Steel Eye Span, Beyond the Dreaming, from their album Bedlam Born. Before that, we heard People of the Dawn from Medicine Dream. And now let's get back to my conversation with Ronnie Pontiac, talking about his new book, American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Practices of the New World. I'm interested in your motivation in bringing this to people. Okay. Why do this? Hmm. An interesting question. Well, first, in a way, it's a tribute to my teacher because I always, at finding this information, I always thought, wow, I wish I could go into his office and show him this. He would be so thrilled to see this. And it builds on his work. And in some ways, if I dare use the word for such an illustrious metaphysical scholar, it corrects some of his work. The new information shows areas where we can deepen our vision or we can clarify things. So, for example, uh, he wrote a great deal about the possibility that Michael Meyer and Robert Flood were, were Rosicrucians. Even though there were denials from them, he felt that they, they said these denials because they were really Rosicrucians. And they, so they had to say, no, I'm not a Rosicrucian because that was right, part of being one. society. Exactly. So he was one of many, many, including academic uh, scholars who believed that Meyer and Flood were friends. Well, new research has shown that that does not appear that they knew each other, ever met each other. And the only real evidence we have of any connection between them is Michael Meyer complaining about Flood in a way that is very uninitiate, un-Rosicrucian. Un, un, uh, no, it was petty. Yes. So now we have new pictures of it. Now, to me, I, I found this liberating because at PRS, there was still a kind of holdover of the... Theosophical Society, Mahatma, Invisible Ascended Masters kind of theory. And to me, this in a way takes away our humanity and their humanity. We wind up sitting there thinking, oh wow, these superhumans from Lemuria who are trying to run things and apparently aren't doing a very good job, by the way, uh, that they, they must be so superior I, I just have to listen to whatever is said and that's the truth and maybe someday i'll be lucky and get to see one or something now if we look at it as i think that modern scholarship shows that for example the author or authors of the rosicrucian manifestos appear to have more in common metaphorically with beats or hippies than than they do with some sort of profound ascended ministry what you see when you look at, for instance, Johann Valentin Andre is a brilliant student. This guy was writing funny satires, but also utopias when he was a child. He was obviously drawn to these things. And then he gets involved with these professors at his college who are radical, who are really into Campanella and, and they're into, above all, Giordano Bruno and John Dee and all these exciting ideas about there's going to be a new order and it's all changing. There's comets and the weather has changed and we're going to convince the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolph, who is an occultist, that he should be the hermetic emperor. And he is already fighting the Pope. He's already fighting the Habsburgs. So why not unite Protestant Europe under this new declared hermetic emperor. Of course, Rudolf was far too, too safe, uh, trying to keep himself safe, and in the end failed. He was deposed. But when you look at that, you see people who are carried away in this fervor. I, in fact, I just sold a book to Inner Traditions about this called um, Rosicrucian Origins in Context, 
showing how the marriage of Frederick and Elizabeth, uh, the Elector Palatine and the Princess Elizabeth Stuart, uh, who became the King and Queen of Bohemia, was seen by these young radicals as this incredible development in world affairs that would change everything. And now they thought, well, we, Rudolf didn't work out, but this must be the guy. Frederick is going to be the emperor, the Protestant emperor. Well, no, he was in instantly defeated. And all these, these hundreds of Rosicrucian pamphlets and books that have been pouring out of the area suddenly ceased. And when you read, for instance, A.E. Waite's uh, Brotherhood of the Rosy Cross, He's wondering what happened because they don't have the academic context at that time to pull together all of this and say, oh, well, this is because the Battle of White Mountain. The hopes of, of Protestant, especially esoteric Europe, were dashed by an, an utter defeat. And it released this tragedy of the Thirty Years' War that decimated Europe. And attention then turned to America among a lot of these esotericists to found new colonies there away from the Habsburgs and away from the Pope. So I look at it and I see, I see these young radicals who, who released the manifestos thinking that they were going to encourage people to, to commit to a universal reformation in their own corner of the universe. And instead, there was hysteria, panic, people pounding their chests saying, I should be a Rosicrucian. And from what we know, at least Andre was very disappointed by this and really retracted because they didn't want to create that kind of action at all. So I look at it and I think this reminds me of the impact of something like On the Road or, or Ginsburg's Howl or, or a Dylan record in the 60s. This, this was information that got out there and a bunch of people said, that's me. I read those kind of books. I believe it. You mean there's more people like me out there? And, and, and look at this bold viewpoint that we're going to take over. We're going to create a universal reformation. So similar to the 1960s, for example, and the idea that there's now we're going to have a new world, a world of love, different goals perhaps, but a similar kind of a counterculture. And so I try to look at Rosicrucianism, for example, through the lens of counterculture and its impact on wider culture, which is vast, by the way, because when you look at the influence of Rosicrucianism, not just the orders that sprung up in various ways from the basic ideas, but for example, Guy de Borges, uh, the Situationist, and the whole Situationist school were influenced by the Rosicrucian manifestos. De Borges thought that the panic that was caused in Paris by the placards that went up announcing that the Rosicrucians had come to Paris was a great idea <laughs> that, that, that he wanted to create riots because of posters that said outrageous things. And that, of course, that he did. Then the purpose of this book, at least in part, is for young folks to get more context as yes. they create what, what they're going to create going forward. Yes, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Ronnie Pontiac talking about his new book, American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World. He's really quite a scholar. The excerpts you're hearing from the interview are good bits, but check out the whole interview at the Paradigms website, paradigms.life. All right, we'll be back with more conversation after we hear some music. This is Ronnie's band that he's in, Lucid Nation. And this one's called World's Guiltiest Pleasure.
World's Guiltiest Pleasure by Lucid Nation. Now we're going to get back to conversation with Ronnie Pontiac, who's the guitar player in Lucid Nation, but we're talking about his new book, American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World. Here's another excerpt from that conversation. You're listening to Paradigms at Paradigms.life. The collision of the Abrahamic religions Mm -hmm. with everyone else right uh, because the abrahamics have been big colonists mm-hmm. around the world it feels like it's ongoing it's like we're still in the enlightenment it hasn't completed you know we're still experiencing the incongruity of perceiving and being part of the natural world and this ideological construct mm-hmm. and it's a problem it seems to me it's causing a lot of suffering yes I agree. And you also have a lot of environmental damage 
that's a result of it. There are many Christians, for example, who think that the Bible is telling them to use up all the resources of the world as quickly as possible to trigger the second coming. That's a very dangerous point of view and very disrespectful to all other faiths and to life on this planet itself. Well, remember James Watt? Jesus will come when the last tree falls. I mean, that's madness. Exactly. Exactly. So, yes, it's definitely a problem. I agree with you. And I think that it's it, again, shows up in a big way in America where you have this this kind of drive to exploit and not just natural resources, but people and also a drive to dismiss. So other beliefs are, are dismissed. They're, they're, as you said, they're simply wrong. And what that creates, the divide that that creates often leads to war. And to the kind of, I guess we could call it a, a soft civil war going on right now in the country. And it's invaded politics in a terrible way. And the, the traditional American idea that there is a separation of church and state is being challenged. I think by people who are cynically abusing believers for the most part. But you know, whatever the case, it, this is ongoing. And so we see the way that we had a period here where a lot of human rights were granted to people who hadn't had them before. And now there's this desire to pull it back and to go back to the to the old way of doing things, because this is supposed to be the holy way and, and the God approved way. And women as chattel, white supremacy. Absolutely. And, it, and it's it's such a this is an ongoing battle. And women, my background, for example, in music, I, my band started out as a Riot Girl band. And if your listeners aren't familiar with Riot Girl, this was a punk movement that grew up under the wing of grunge. It was very independent. It was completely operated by women. Really amazing. I was one of the few boys that was involved in it. And I was coming out of Manly Hall and PRS and I had decided to, for various reasons, to let my wife Tamara take the lead. And she wanted to go into music and to go into Riot Girl. She had a lot to say. And so I got to experience that. I did seven Riot Girl conventions and countless shows. And it, it was every bit as important to waking me up as being at PRS with Manly Hall, because what I learned about what women go through and still go through in this culture astonished and made me ashamed. And I saw so much of it in myself, even though I'd already walked this spiritual path with Manly Hall and to the point that he designated me as his substitute lecturer. And I was seen as somebody who really understood these matters. I, I had to confront all of this internalized misogyny and, and it, it was very embarrassing often. So now as I look at the world, first of all, it's way better now. I mean, women are in positions of power in ways that they have never been in this country. And women are, are really not taking a lot of nonsense in terms of, of I think we're going to see a big, big reaction from women and young people politically as we go forward here, because I hope so. I I believe so. I thought that with the last election and truly it was Generation Z that that won that election for the Democrats and and the Democrats aren't aren't without fault themselves. And there's there's so there's a lot of I'll give you an example. Marianne Williamson, who was somebody who worked at PRS and who I knew back then in in a very casual way. When she ran for president, even now, when she declared for the presidency, liberal women were making fun of her. I mean, I mean, Biden's own press secretary made jokes about her dismissing her as not worth even talking about in a press conference. 
a really awful thing to do to women. And not only that, but but she represents a point of view um, in the last election when she talked about dark forces. Millions of people got it and they were thrilled that somebody said that, that, they, that there was actually attention given to their belief system. And this kind of dismissal, which is aimed at women and, and at practitioners of American metaphysical religion, is really a form of suppression, I think. Hopefully, there's enough consciousness raising going on among women and this spectacle of having their rights pulled back will further their cause. And the same thing with young people who we see from the polls are, are very different from the older generations in terms of their tolerance for diversity and their interest in equality. And so my feeling is that we, we will see I mean, the battles ongoing and we're not going to, to discount how dangerous the situation is right now. We've got very cynical people. In my opinion, DeSantis, for example, is a very cynical guy and he's using this kind of innocence that exists in the, uh, let's call them the patriarchal monotheisms to appeal to people and to scare them. In South Carolina this week, a legislator put forth a bill that would call for the death penalty for any women who have abortions or miscarriages. Mm -hmm. And then 21 other people signed on as co-sponsors. Yeah. I mean, this is happening. People are really working hard and willing to use violence to roll back progress. Yes. The word progressive has become a bad word in certain circles, yes. which is really nuts. Yeah, no, truly. Uh, it is. And it, well, this is the kind of manipulation that happens through propaganda. And propaganda is so rife now that, that we no one knows what's going on. And AI is going to make that even more insane. Oh, yeah. Well, we're lied to constantly. Yes, exactly. Constantly. The, yes. We've got more conversation with Ronnie Pontiac coming up, but we're going to hear some music. You may have noticed the music is sort of mirroring the trajectory of the book a bit. So now we're going to hear a great live version of Jackson Brown performing his song, Before the Deluge. Troubled years 
Some of them new pleasure And some of them new pain And for some of them It was only the moment that mattered And on the brave and crazy wings of youth They went flying around in the rain And the feathers went so Just
Before the Deluge, Jackson Brown. That's from the No Nukes concert album that came out in the late 1970s. People preparing for the end. Well, it's part of our mythology. Here's the next part of my conversation with Ronnie Pontiac. I feel like America has been robbed of a great deal of our heritage. So, for example, when I was a kid, I was raised by atheist war survivors. I was had no social contract. I was had a really terrible childhood. And I, by the time I reached 17, I was the worst of everything. I was a criminal. I was racist. I was fronting a nihilist band that had a following of racist bikers. And I mean, just terrible. I mean, I was really headed for a disaster. And I didn't know where to go religiously. I thought all the religions that I knew about were terrible. I, I just didn't have any feeling of, of, of belonging to any of it. And so I reached out to Crowley, uh, Austin Spare. Um, I found Anton LaVey wasn't dark enough. He wasn't, I, want, I was looking for a politics of power and destruction. And even Crowley wasn't, he wasn't there at all. And so I was constantly disappointed by these supposedly evil writers that everyone was condemning. Now I realize that there were so many choices that in fact, there was a heritage that no one made available to me or anybody else of every imaginable kind of spiritual path. Almost anything you could think of, some American has been out there trying to make it happen, sometimes so early that it's astonishing. And so I wanted to, this is so bold and I, I mean, the book would really have to be a, a big success, and I doubt that it will be. But I would love for people to understand the richness of the American heritage. And I find the people that are written about in this book, including the frauds, and there are many of them, to be so quintessentially American because they're so bold and they, they typify uh, Emerson's dictum that, that, that birthed new, new, uh, the transcendentalist movement, which was, why must we view the divine through the lens of the past? Why can't we have a direct relationship? We should have our own relationship and not worry about what people thought in the past. That's so American. And so here we have all these people who did that before and after Emerson and boldly attempted these things. And I also found that even frauds could have wisdom to share. And even very wise and exemplary people could have moments that were somewhat fraudulent. And so it changed the whole view, this kind of black and white view of, well, this guy's no good because he did that. And that guy's no good because he did this. And, oh, forget her. No, all of a sudden we see these are all fascinating people. They, they had interesting ideas. And even if we don't agree with their ideas, we can admire their courage and at a time. I mean, today to, to embrace an alternative religion is, is trendy. In their time, it was dangerous. Right. People were killed for that. Absolutely. You're, you bring up a very interesting point, which is that organized religion usually relies upon the idea of the intercessor between the congregation and the divine. And in the 60s and since, and, and I'm sure before then too, but I was born in 1960, so it's my frame of reference, that has been rejected a lot, mm -hmm. uh, widely. Not Completely. And there's a real pull back to that with megachurches and all that. But right. but I think what happened was somehow permission was granted in some way for people to go, wait a minute, I can question all this. And what is my direct experience? And I think I'm going to go with that. And that comes out of so many other movements, psychology and science and mm -hmm. all these ways of looking at existence more from the outside than the inside. Yes. And so now we're 
we are essentially in this giant power struggle, it seems like, between mm-hmm. the the theists, monotheists especially, and everyone else. Right. I think also we have a, a problem with the way that power is abused. These big institutions have so much power, so much wealth, and they become magnets for people who are abusive and who are, are, are in thirsty for power. They imitate the power over paradigm of their theism. Exactly. Yes, extre- very much so. And I think that, that part of what has happened, and this, this is a, it has been throughout American history, there have been people who were seeking that and who were advocating for that kind of openness, although it never achieved any really major uh, presence until the 1960s and then on into the New Age movement, which was a huge explosion of it. And so here we have, for example, this in academia mid-century, in the last century, there was a lot of anxiety about, about this idea that somebody can just have their own path. They used to call it bricolage. They also called it Sheilaism or collaging. And the anxiety was that here you have these people who are not prepared to make these kinds of investigations, supposedly, because they haven't gone to a seminary. And they are going to just pick things here and there that, they, that appeals to them. And there was a feeling of certainty that this would lead to, first of all, the failure of the system when it was needed for all the Sheilas out there, because they would discover that, no, that, that didn't really work. When you seek, you know, when you're in that existential angst and you seek for the divine, you're not going to find it if you're doing bricolage. And then there was also the fear that this would create isolation in society. If everybody has their own religion, then there is no unity. There is no community. Well, we've seen since then that that's not the case, that, that people are creating these hybrids and they are working and they are finding community within those hybrids. In fact, that's another reason I think I wrote the book was was hoping that that these communities could recognize kindredness in each, in each other, that rather than having these, these these rather strict divisions between interests. So. So witches are over here and Kabbalists are over there and the witches may be using Kabbalah in their tarot, but they are not Kabbalists. Well, there's a lot of sim- lot more similarity than difference amongst all these people. Mm-hmm. And the book, I hope, shows that. It shows how there are similarities in practice and belief that, that, that are rather, I think, exciting to recognize and how many people are involved in this. And well, I, I personally feel that it would be a mistake for it to be institutional because it would be abused at some point, but maybe it can't be stopped. I mean, if you look at it historically, very often the conquered people wind up practicing the religion of the conquered. So the Aryans in India, the, the Romans in Greece, and yep. it could very well be, especially given the circumstances we find ourselves in where the survival of our ecosphere really depends on the kind of respect that indigenous people had. So could it be that eventually Americans adopt a kind of uh, indigenous form of, of Christianity, of American metaphysical religion where, and we do see this, by the way, there is a green movement among Christians, especially young Christians, who they feel that the idea that the last, the last tree idea is wrong and is sinful. They call it creation care. Yes, exactly. I love this conversation and I love the stuff you're saying. And it, it makes me actually feel that we are moving forward. It's easy sometimes to lose track of that because some people are trying to, it seems, drag us backwards. But 
as as uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley used to say, chickens don't go back into eggs. <laughs> exactly. And that's part of the reason for my book, too, I think, is to create that hope, that feeling of, of understanding. Look at what's happened in this country. Look at the progress. Look at the way that that this has flourished secretly when it was being attacked. So what happens now when you have, sure, you can go after it in Florida, but my understanding is that California is the fourth biggest economy in the world right now. I, I think I heard that we're bigger than Germany. Yeah. So you're not going to, to get Californians to go that way. The Fifth Sacred Thing. Did mm -hmm. you ever read that? Yes. Oh, yeah. Love yeah. that book. Yeah. Well, I hope that your book reaches a lot of people and the show is just part of getting it out there because I think you presented some really important perspective. Thank you. I hope you'll have me back. It was very enjoyable. I'd love to do it again. Great. Anytime. Just uh, let me know. Ronnie Pontiac, it was great talking with you. The book is really amazing. It's a really powerful history lesson. It's also fun and it has really important ramifications in looking at the religious extremism we're seeing in the United States nowadays. It's getting more violent, the idea that now religious extremists are proposing the death penalty for women who get medical treatments, abortions, or who have miscarriages, the denial of science and the willingness to take away human rights because of religion. This is dangerous stuff. And the reason we're talking about it is because it's hard to talk about, but it's important that we talk about it. So I hope you will have discussions with your friends and family. I hope you'll listen to the full interview with Ronnie Pontiac. This is of great ongoing importance. So Ronnie, thank you so much for the conversation. I can't wait to have another one and for the really great scholarly work you're doing, bringing important information to people. And if you enjoyed this episode of Paradigms, I hope you will go hear the whole interview and check out the rest of the site, paradigms.life. Paradigms can use your support. We have a Patreon campaign going at patreon.com paradigms. I hope you'll check that out and become a supporter. Oh, and don't forget, you can find Paradigms wherever you find your podcasts. So YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, you name it. Well, we come to the end of another episode of Paradigms. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going to leave you, as usual, with a word for the week. The word for the week is harmony. Harmony is a musical term, but it's also used to refer to how people can get along. Harmony between people is about learning to work together even when we are different. And that seems to be something we need more practice at these days. So I'm going to leave you with one more track of music from Lucid Nation, Ronnie Pontiac's band. This one's called Last Day of Pretend. Baruch signing off for this episode of Paradigms. We'll see you next time with more inspired, inspiring people. Until then, harmony, harmonize, and be well.
been listening to Paradigms at paradigms.life.